Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies double 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolohoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Kenyan opposition parties intensify calls for referendum. UN chief calls for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. And EU threatens Russia with harsher sanctions over Ukraine. In economics, Zimbabwe could miss its 6.3% growth target for 2014. And in sports news, South African Football Association prepares to announce new Bafana coach. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. The Central African Republic's peace talks are on hold. This after the Seleka rebel delegation failed to show up for the second day of meetings in Congo, Brazzaville yesterday. There are reportedly internal divisions in Seleka over the document that calls for cessation of hostilities. The development marks a setback for regional mediators trying to negotiate a ceasefire in the country. Thousands of people have died since sectarian violence erupted last December. Kenya's opposition party Coalition for Reforms and Democracy has unanimously endorsed a proposal to hold a referendum on challenges facing the country. Court called for a referendum earlier this month during the Sabah Sabah rally at Uhuru Park on 13 key issues after calls for national dialogue with the government failed. The opposition has raised issues on the state of the country's security, the fight against corruption, disbandment of the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission and the withdrawal of the Kenya Defence Forces from Somalia and in con- and in con- in con- Inclusivity in government appointments. Court Secretary General Anyong Nyong. That the Jubilee administration presents to the people of Kenya with the roadmap for the withdrawal of our gallant sons and daughters fighting in Somalia updates the country on how many of our soldiers have been killed in that war, what kind of support the state has extended to their families, how much the government is spending on this war and how much expenditure is being incurred by Amisom. A national day of mourning is being held in the Netherlands for the 193 Dutch victims of the flight MH17 crash. The first bodies of the victims of the Malaysia Airlines disaster are due to be returned from Ukraine today. The Justice Ministry says the Dutch King and Queen and the Prime Minister will attend a private memorial ceremony with relatives to receive the bodies. Representatives of some of the 10 other nations whose citizens were killed in the crash will also be present. 
An initiative put forward by Egypt based on a November 2012 ceasefire is the most promising framework to end the fighting in Gaza. That's the message to members of the UN Security Council by UN Chief Ban Ki-moon. Ban has been addressing the council via video conference from Ramallah, the fifth stop on his journey to raise support for an end to the conflict. He says the effort has garnered the support of Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas and the Arab League. Unfortunately, he notes that Hamas has yet to respond positively. This is the most meaningful path to peace. I have also discussed Israel's legitimate security concerns with the Prime Minister Netanyahu and Defense Minister Yalom. And I'm going to continue my meetings with the President Paris as well as other ministers. I once again strongly condemn the indiscriminate rocket fire launched by Hamas and Islamic Jihad from Gaza into Israel. I am also alarmed by Israel's heavy response and the corresponding high civilian death toll. Meanwhile, several national airlines have suspended flights to Israel because of security fears over the Gaza conflict. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has temporarily banned all national carriers from flying to Tel Aviv. Air France, Lufthansa, Dutch airline KLM and Air Canada have all announced similar moves. British Airways, however, is maintaining its flights to Israel. The suspension come after a rocket from the Gaza Strip reportedly landed close to Tel Aviv Airport. Showen Bryce Peace filed this report from New York on the U.S. FAA ban. The FAA statement says the notice was issued in response to a rocket strike which landed approximately one mile from Ben Gurion International earlier Tuesday morning. What's called a notice to airmen applies only to U.S. operators and has no authority over foreign airlines operating to or from the airport. The FAA says it will continue to monitor and evaluate the situation with updated instructions expected no later than 24 hours after the FAA notice went into force. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorza. Africa, amuka na unai. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Wednesday, July the 23rd, the 204th day of the year 2014, with exactly 161 days left in the year. Our top story, a parliamentary group of Kenya's main opposition party, Coalition for Reforms and Democracy, CORD, unanimously endorsed a proposal to hold a referendum on crucial challenges facing the country. The challenges include insecurity that has gripped Kenya following the frequency of terrorist attacks in the East African nation since it sent troops to Somalia more than three years ago. James Shimanyula reports from Nairobi. Kenya's opposition parliamentary group has unanimously approved the proposed national referendum and vowed to work towards its realization and success to stem the tide of insecurity, corruption, nepotism, tribalism, and a series of injustices that, as it put it, 
has crippled Kenyans. However, the opposition did not announce a date for the referendum. The endorsement was made by 98 opposition members of parliament after meeting for nine hours at a posh hotel on the southeastern outskirts of the capital Nairobi. The unanimous decision to endorse the proposed national referendum was read in a form of a statement to the media by a young young secretary general of the opposition coalition for reforms and democracy code in the presence of the party's leader raila odinga that the declining security situation in the country is a clear demonstration of a regime that has abdicated the highest calling of any responsible government to protect the lives and property of its citizens. As Kenyans continue to be ravaged by marauding gangs and terrorists all over the country and the coastal region in particular, court condemns the Jubilee leadership's hollow rhetoric and never-ending ultimatums that have yielded nothing and exhibited little empathy with the victims of these attacks. The statement claimed without saying how that the government was solely behind attacks that have occurred in the country in the recent past. Code is disturbed and concerned that aspects of insecurity engulfing the coast is the work of agents of the states and the deliberate diversionary tactics devised to tribalize the escalating security situation. We demand an overhaul of the security and intelligence management of the country and a comprehensive plan for peace and security for all residents of the coastal region in particular and the country in general. The statement further renewed the opposition's call to President Uhuru Kenyatta's ruling party, Jubilee, to pull Kenyan troops from Somalia. That the Jubilee administration presents to the people of Kenya with the roadmap for the withdrawal of our gallant sons and daughters fighting in Somalia updates the country on how many of our soldiers have been killed in that war, what kind of support the state has extended to their families, how much the government is spending on this war, and how much expenditure is being incurred by AMISOM. AMISOM is the acronym for the African Union Peacekeeping Force in Somalia. Kenyans have expressed mixed reactions on the decision by opposition court to unanimously endorse proposed referendum to oversee crucial issues in the country. Uh, to my understanding and my belief, I think this referendum will going to change the face of Kenya because uh, in the first instance when, when the side of court really tried the government to intervene them to take issues or to dialogue with them, they refused. But now I think this is the way to go, the, the, the only way to solve most of the problems that we are facing in the country now. Within one day, they can manage to get a million signatures. That is my belief, and I know as a common man who is represented down there how people are feeling. Uh, people are feeling that this government is not really doing whatever is necessary of them because you can see the rate of insecurity in the country. Every day, every night, people are being massacred. That is now what will make people to, in fact, give out their signatures or to support, uh, rather, this referendum call. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. 
Addressing the Security Council from Ramallah, the West Bank, the UN chief has called for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas that addresses the deeper issues to the conflict. Bangi Moon is among a number of high-profile diplomats working in the region to facilitate a cessation of hostilities and deaths on both sides, particularly Palestinians, continue to mount, including thousands of injured. This as emotional scenes played out in the council during the quarterly open debate on the Middle East, which placed the Palestinian question front and center. Sean Bryce Peace reports from Reports. The Security Council heard from an emotional Palestinian observer, Representative Riyad Mansour, holding up pictures of victims in Gaza as he addressed a packed council chamber. These are the human faces of our victims. And these are samples of those who suffer the most and the largest number of them killed, the children. We are not numbers. We are human beings. Mansour then appealed, as he's done countless times in the past, for the Security Council to act. On behalf of the Palestinian people, we ask, what is the international community doing to stop this bloodletting, to stop Israelis' atrocities? What is the Security Council doing to uphold its commitment to protect civilians in armed conflict and uphold the law and the charter? Israel fired back through Deputy Permanent Representative Ambassador David Root that this was not a war they chose, describing their incursion into Gaza as a last resort. Israel did not want this war. Three times, three different times, Israel agreed to accept a ceasefire. And every single time, Hamas refused and launched even more rockets. Each of these rockets sent a message loud and clear. Hamas is determined to wage war. He argued his country was doing its utmost to avoid harming civilians, instead accusing Hamas of using them as human shields. We have said before, Israel has no interest in being in Gaza. We are fighting in Gaza, but we are not fighting the people of Gaza. The equation is simple. When it is quiet in Israel, it will be quiet in Gaza. The goal of our operation is to eliminate the rockets, shut down the terror tunnels, and demilitarize Gaza in order to restore sustained quiet to the people of Israel. But Riyad Mansour rejected what he described as cynical Israeli arguments. Our children, women and men are not terrorists. And no family would allow their loved ones to be used as human shields. The reality is that they have been held captive by Israel in an open prison called Gaza, which remains under Israeli occupation and control, regardless of the false Israeli narrative regarding the 2005 redeployment. The United Nations has indicated that the most promising prospect of a ceasefire comes from an initiative led by Egypt. Speaking from Ramallah, the Secretary General described his dealings in the region as being at a highly sensitive moment, expressing a hope and belief that the talks will lead to results and an end to the fighting in the very near future. I'm Sherman Bryce in New York.
The Palestinian decision-making body led by U.S.-backed President Mahmoud Abbas has endorsed demands by Hamas for halting Gaza hostilities with Israel, a closing of ranks that may help Egyptian mediator truce efforts. With Israeli and U.S. encouragement, Egypt has tried to get both sides to hold fire and then negotiate terms for protracted calm in the Palestinian enclave, where officials say 624 people, mostly civilians, have been killed in 15 days of fighting. Now, our question to you this morning is... Is the U.S. applying enough pressure on Israel to stop its offensive on Gaza? Email us on info at channelafrica.org. Send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Going back in time today to 1904, the ice cream cone is invented by Charles E. Menches during the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis in the U.S. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. European Union foreign ministers meeting in Brussels have threatened Russia with harsher sanctions over Ukraine that could inflict wider damage on its economy following the suspicious crash of a Malaysian airliner. Such sanctions would require the approval of all EU leaders and would apply only if Moscow does not cooperate with an international investigation into the Malaysia Airlines plane crash in an area of eastern Ukraine controlled by Russian back separatists and fails to stop weapons flowing into the country. Jack Parrock reports from Brussels. At the crash site of MH17, they're picking through the mess of destruction and loss of life, and neither political implications of this tragedy are being scrutinised. EU foreign ministers refrained from moving into stage three sanctions against Moscow, which would target specific areas of the Russian economy, instead deciding to extend current measures against individuals and entities like banks. EU Foreign Policy Chief Baroness Catherine Ashton says they are moving to take action. We today decided to accelerate the preparation of targeted measures agreed at the summit last week, in particular to put in place very quickly a list of entities and people, including from Russia, under the new enhanced criteria, and to expand the restrictive measures to target individuals or companies who actively benefit from support of the Russian decision-makers responsible for the annexation of Crimea or the destabilisation of eastern Ukraine. The UK has been pushing hard for the EU to move into stronger sanctions, but the Netherlands and others are concerned it could interfere with the repatriation process for the 193 Dutch victims of the crash. The three big players of the European Union all have different worries surrounding stage three sanctions as well. Britain would be affected by a targeting of the Russian financial sector, the French if military contracts were severed, and Germany if the EU slapped heavy restrictions on Russian energy imports. Many still say the EU isn't moving quickly enough, though. Guntram Wolf is director of the economic think tank, 
Bruegel. The EU does have a problem uh, really defining its own coherent strategy to its neighbors, including uh, in the case of, uh, of the shutdown or of the, of the crashed uh, aircraft, for which we don't know really yet the reasons. But, uh, you know, the, this, this, the EU clearly has much more trouble coming forward with one position on what we think has been the reasons, what we think should be the reactions uh, compared, to, uh, compared to the United States, for example. In addition to this, the process of identifying the bodies of those killed in the crash is underway, having been flown from Ukraine to the Netherlands. Dutch Foreign Minister Franz Timmerman. Well, I think there is uh, the need to continue the investigation and the need to get access to the crash site, but I feel strengthened by the fact that the United Nations Security Council unanimously adopted a resolution which asked for this uh, admission, a resolution that was supported by Russia. There have been some concerns over the actual number of bodies being transferred. Dutch officials are saying only 200 instead of 282 have been accounted for. They say if the discrepancy is not resolved, they will have to go back to the crash site and search for the other remains. It could take months to identify every victim at the investigation in the city of Hilversum in the Netherlands. Jack Parrick, Brussels. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine or coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A massive shortage of healthcare workers around the world and particularly in Africa is hampering efforts to fight cancer and other diseases. The concern has been raised by the Union for International Cancer Control, an organization that helps the global health community accelerate the fight against cancer. Experts have been brainstorming the challenges that exist at the 8th Stop Cervical Breast and Prostate Cancer Conference in Namibia. Melanie Moses is there. The World Health Organization estimates that more than 4 million healthcare workers are needed to meet the growing global shortage, and the Union for International Cancer Control says Africa faces the greatest challenge. The organization's Ricardo Lampariello. We always talk about uh, resources, funding, but uh, at the end of the day, who saves people's lives are the health uh, workers. And this takes long, an awful amount of time. To give you an example, to train a physician in UK takes 10 years. To train a nurse takes uh, three years. And so the decision that we make today actually will have an impact in the long term. He says not only do we have too few doctors and nurses, but those who are here aren't given enough incentive to stay on our shores. And so you have to give opportunities, you have to give a career development plan, possibility to make a research, the impact of brain drain. This is dramatic because it has an impact on the health, the health system. So this would mean that a lot of people will not get the service that they need. And so this will cause unnecessary pain and suffer, if not death. 57 countries, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, face crippling shortages of doctors and nurses. The WHO estimates that Africa needs at least 900,000 more health workers. It says while the region holds 24% of the global disease burden, it only has 3% of the world's healthcare workers. Another concern when it comes to the prevention, early detection and treatment of cancer is the often haphazard way it's being tackled by governments. 
Professor Christina Stefan from Stellenbosch University in Cape Town told delegates that most countries in Africa don't have a proper plan and strategy to deal with cancer. She says national cancer control plans exist in less than half the countries on the continent. This as millions of lives are lost to the illness every year. If we don't have a proper plan, if we don't know what is the current situation, we can't really come up with measures. So the first step will be definitely to analyze the current situation. How many types of cancers do we have? What type of cancers do we have? And depending on that, so having proper functional registries, from there we can analyze, we can prevent, we can screen, we can treat the cancer and basically improve the quality of life of those who are suffering from this disease. South Africa has been praised for being one of the countries in Africa that has taken issues around cancer seriously. But many challenges remain, among them access to treatment for men, women and children in rural communities. Durban-based oncologist Dr. Tandeka Maziboko says if patients can't make it to hospitals and clinics, then specialists need to go to them. I have found that a path of a patient to come to me is too long, but a path for me to get to them is shorter. Hence the cry for a paradigm shift I am saying as doctors, as oncologists, is there a way that the tertiary system can be interpreted into a patient level? She says with the current system, it's also difficult to follow up with cancer patients on treatment and care because many live in informal settlements and rural areas. This may be the patient who's in that cycle of chemotherapy out of six cycles that are planned to give the patient. How do I know if this patient just lost hope and decided this treatment is not working for me because of side effects? But if in my card of the patient had Induna, had the chief, had somebody in the community, had the ward counselor written in this card, don't you think it will be easy to find this patient? The conference wrapped up with the wives of 18 African presidents reaffirming their commitment to fighting cancer. South Africa's Tobeka Madiba Zuma was amongst them. The First Lady signed a declaration promising to see that sound policies are implemented and to make sure people have access to treatment and care. They've also pledged to dispel the myths and stigmas associated with the illness by working with civil society as well as religious and traditional leaders. Melanie Moses, Namibia. A new tourism law has been gazetted in Zimbabwe in a bid to plug porous borders that have seen the southern African nation losing millions of dollars every year. The enactment of the new law will help Zimbabwe make at least $5 billion per year in the tourism sector. Simon Muchemo has more. Zimbabwe's tourism minister Walter Muzembe says the country has amended tourism laws aimed at plugging its porous borders. The new law is aimed at increasing tourist revenue to 5 billion US dollar per year by 2020. Muzembe says Zimbabwe is losing millions of dollars due to a relaxed law and regulations at the borders. Despite having some of the busiest borders in the region, Zimbabwe is failing to account for the activities in terms of revenue. Borders such as Nyamapanda, Chirundu, Plum Tree and Bed Bridge are some of the busiest in the region as they cater for travelers to South Africa from Zambia, Mozambique, Malawi, Tanzania 
and Democratic Republic of Congo. During a media briefing on Monday, Muzembe said the new law was crafted during the inclusive government between President Robert Mugabe and his archrivals from the opposition movement for democratic change. This very particular one that we are launching um, on Thursday, the 24th, is a product of a lot of work that was done during the <coughs> inclusive government. Um, and it was actually passed for as, as policy by the cabinet of Zimbabwe in December 2012. But um, tourism policies are dynamic. Okay, As you go forward, you see the need to actually hang on to them until you have abstracted as much as possible. So what we are now putting to the public is a revision even of what we adopted in cabinet in December 2012 because then I took a lot of recommendations that were placed uh, to me uh, by cabinet in, in December and we've been revising and amending and adding and it is a much better product now uh, in terms of its dynamism and uh, the answer therefore is yeah it is the first. Zimbabwe is in red with a total of 9.9 billion US dollar of both foreign and domestic debt. President Robert Mugabe's government is broke that salaries of workers are not guaranteed. Companies continue to fold every month, placing thousands of workers on the overballooning job market. Muzembe said, currently the country is not able to tell how much revenue is lost as a result of corruption at the borders. Um, if you can't measure it, you can't know it. Okay. And this is why we've gone out to the UNWTO to assist us to define a tourism satellite accounting model. And in partnership with the region, we're actually developing a product that we will be launching soon, or which will be able to assist us in keeping those leakages and at least measuring them and knowing how much is going out. What I'm quite clear about is that uh, it is very difficult to reconcile right now our arrivals and our receipts. We have too many people arriving and far little being banked uh, by the sector uh, as much as we would want to see. On corruption, Muzembe said the problem is not just only in the tourism sector but all the sectors of the economy. He said mining alone is losing nearly 1 billion US dollar every year as gold continues to be smuggled outside the country. I think that the, the greatest mischief in our economy today, not just in tourism as it were, but uh, in the entire economy, is actually it's hemorrhaging, it's, uh, our borders are porous and uh, it is not restricted just to, to tourism and we need to curb those losses as a starting point. Anybody who does uh, balanced restructuring will tell you that the first thing that you address in, in financial re-engineering is actually losses. Before you even go to investment of turnover and other things, you, you plug losses uh, and then it will certainly give you an upturn in your balance sheet. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe's police have been blamed for the revenue loss in Zimbabwe due to corruption. A 2012 report by a Zimbabwean organization called Research Advocacy Unit says 
Zimbabwean police are the most corrupt among its all government workers. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. It is 8.30 Central African time and Anne Musa is up next with the headlines. Good morning. The Central African Republic's peace talks are on hold following the Seleka rebels delegation's failure to show up for the second day of meetings yesterday. Kenya's opposition party, Coalition for Reforms and Democracy, unanimously endorses a proposal to hold a referendum on challenges facing the country. And National Day of Mourning is being held in the Netherlands for the 193 Dutch victims of the flight MH17 crash. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. South Africa's herbal rooibos tea has secured geographic indicator status in the long-awaited economic partnership agreement between Southern African nations and the European Union. South Africa's trade and industry minister has termed the designation significant given the widespread popularity rooibos had acquired in Europe in recent years. Last year, the South African Roybos Council hurriedly managed to stop an attempt by a French company to trademark the name, fearing that it could secure exclusive use. For more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Davi de Villiers, Director of Natural Resources at South African Roybos Council. Roybos is a herbal tea that is only found in the Western Cape region of South Africa. It's consumed worldwide caffeine-free, very healthy tea. Looking at the social and environmental sustainability issues about the tea, what could be said about it? Roibos is unique to South Africa, and in so being, it provides a lot of job opportunities for South Africans. We're trying to protect the products so that it's only grown within South Africa so that we protect those jobs and we protect all that foreign revenue that we can earn. And that's one of the things that the DTI has been working on recently is protecting South African products. And I refer particularly to the geographic indicator status of a product like rooibos. Maybe just to explain quickly a geographic indicator, a well-known one is champagne, which may only be produced in a certain region within France and if it's not then you can't label it as champagne. So we're trying to achieve something similar for rooibos tea. What would you say is the significance of rooibos having secured a geographic indicator status in the long-awaited economic partnership agreement between Southern African nations and the EU? When rooibos is registered as a geographic indicator, it will be significant in that we have protection. Maybe to illustrate that point, for us it would be a disaster if Australia or the United States started to grow a product and market it as rooibos. For us, in terms of protecting jobs and revenues, we want to control the use of the word rooibos, and that's where the word geographic indicator comes in. And uh, looking at last year, the South African Rainbow's Council scrambled to stop an attempt by a French company, Campagne de Trussi, to trademark the name in France. How successful was that? 
That was stopped. It's not the first attempt that we've had where a private company tries to monopolize the word rooibos. But once we have achieved this geographic indicator status, it will provide automatic protection for the name rooibos and the use of the name rooibos. So, you know, we wouldn't have to go through the process of lobbying government to help us with protection against a private company. We wouldn't have to have the cost of any legal actions to stop the illegal use of the word. It would automatically have protection under the geographic indicator status. Talking about the major threats of the plant itself, what could be said to be? Well, obviously, one of the issues with rooibos, it's an agricultural product. So there are risks involved in it in that you have the possibility of drought. You have the possibility of unfavorable weather conditions, maybe too much rain, a whole host of factors. But generally, rooibos is quite a resilient plant. It can survive in fairly dry conditions, and it does not need heavy agricultural input. It's not intensive farming. So I would say probably the main issue is complete lack of rain. That would be a threat to the industry. And then uh, the habitat transformation, how does it respond to its habitat transformation? Well, rooibos, like any naturally occurring plant, wants the ecosystems surrounding it to work well. I mentioned a particular case where rivers have been diverted or rivers have been choked by alien vegetation. And in doing that, you obviously affect the groundwater situation, which can have a knock-on your rooibos fields. That's just one, one very obvious case. That was Davi de Villiers, Director of Natural Resources at South African Rooibos Council, talking to Wandile Kalipa. Late former president, former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, is still the country's most valuable brand. This is according to the latest report on South Africa's 50 most valuable brands. The study conducted by consultancy company Brand Finance in partnership with Brand South Africa shows that South Africa's strongest brands, MTN and FNB, have both been rated as this year's strongest brands at the annual Top 50 Brands. The report also shows that South Africa leads the continent with 72%, while Nigeria stands at 26% and Kenya at 2%. For more on this, we earlier spoke to Tebe Ikalafeng, chairman at Brand Finance Africa. Uh, this report we conduct um, uh, uh, every year, and, um, and, and what we try and do, we try and understand what are the key drivers of, of building great brands, not just in South Africa, but really around the world. And what we also try and do is we try and estimate the methodology which we call the royalty relief. We try and estimate if you were to lease out or to sell your brand, what rate would you charge? And we take that rate and we bring it forward to the present with, uh, with the revenues to estimate the, uh, the net present value of your brand. So that's the methodology basic. But, uh, but the key findings, uh, again, reinforce that it doesn't take a day to build a brand. It takes a long time to build a brand uh, through consistent investment, marketing support, and, and ensuring that you are you know, investing in the equity of your brand. Now, Tebe, looking at brands like MTN, the cell phone operator, they've really done well. What are they doing right that other brands are not getting right? To build a great brand, you must have a very clear value proposition. You must be very consistent. And MTN has done that very well. What MTN has done very well as well is that they have, uh, they perhaps uh, of, of all the brands, 
have got a consistent presence across the continent. And with the 2010 World Cup, they had an opportunity as well to be able to tell their story, not just uh, to South Africans, but to the rest of the world. And, uh, and, and their value proposition, you know, it's everywhere you want to go. Uh, and simple products, you know, I think MTN are, are one of the founders, are the creators of the pay-as-you-go methodology, uh, by which it is now the world standard. So those simple propositions, those simple delivery on the promises have helped to establish them as a great brand. But also we must not forget, they invest incredibly well in marketing their brand. Now, Tebe, um you know, it has been said that a thriving Made in South Africa campaign and entrepreneurship spirit are what built South Africa's wealth, reputation and competitiveness. What do you make of the statement? Indeed, without entrepreneurs, we will not have MTN, we will not have Vodacom, we will not have the standard banks, the upsides of the world. These businesses were first started by entrepreneurs. We need entrepreneurs because they are the people who take the risks, they are the people who spot the, the opportunity, and they are the people who believe in the ideas. And for South Africa, uh, to indeed for the, for the continent to uh, to thrive, we are going to have to uh, to invest in entrepreneurship. And all the banks, you can look at them, in the top 10, Woolworth, mm-hmm. Investec, Mediclinic, SMB, and, and Medbank, all of them were started by a person. And today they are a big institution. Now, looking at South Africa as a country, and uh, of course we have to look at ourselves as a brand, um, a competitive brand and an investment destination. Now, can you just touch on 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 the the issue of um, dealing with the long-lasting strikes that have been taking place in South Africa recently? And uh, basically, it's an annual thing. Does this? sort of uh, destabilize our, our brand brand standing or you know with regards to investment for investors come wanting to come into south africa and if you look at the strikes let's say for example the long the, the long run of platinum mm. strikes i think our, our mining in south africa is about 10 percent of the economy mm. and our exporter and our budget but it's responsible for about 60 percent of our of our exports so you can imagine if that industry is destabilized how destabilized our economy will be. Of course, when the world looks into South Africa, uh, they look to say, will my money be stable? Will I be able to get to generate uh, revenues? I think they lost uh, 26 or 50 billion mm. uh, in revenues uh, during uh, uh, during the time. But of course, there is the other side of the hand uh, of the coin as well. If you look at the Gini coefficient of, of South Africa, South Africa is the most unequal society in the world. And uh, I think that there were merits to the strike in terms of uh, were people earning a living wage compared to their senior executives and all those. Mm. So it's actually a balancing of scenarios. The important thing is that as South Africans, as brands of Africa, we must remember that indeed we do have a great story to tell over the last uh, 20 years, but what we need to do is we need to ensure that everybody gets to understand what that story means and how we get to that and how we create a better life for all. Uh, Once everybody understands the brand of South Africa, what South Africa is about, and they believe in in the decisions that we're making uh, that they are going to help to sustain their wealth in South Africa, that should not be a problem. Now, Tebe, my final question to you. Um, Looking at individuals within our country, and um, apart from that, not only in South Africa and the continent as a whole, are we patriotic enough about our countries, our nations, our brands, and ourselves as brands? What we need to do more of and better of as South Africans is to be more patriotic. You know, because we are the flag bearers. 
we are the, we should be the people who, who provide the confidence to uh, to the to South Africans and to the rest of the world that we believe in this in this country. I think if there is one weakness of South Africa is that there is no well defined meaning of what it means to be South African or idea of what it means to be South African. Because once we have that unified idea of what it means to be South African, we can then rally everybody around that. But that's what we are trying to do. Indeed, at Brand South Africa, we're playing a part in trying to understand, trying to make it subtle and many ways to try and demonstrate the values of being South African as the values which were embodied or espoused by the likes of the Mandela and, and many others. And that was Tebe Galafeng, chairman of Brand Finance Africa, talking to us earlier. It is 8.43 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Going back in time, today in 1986, the obligatory carrying of passbooks by black people in South Africa is lifted. The pass system was, however, not abandoned altogether. Black men and women were still required to have passbooks, although they were no longer expected to carry them at all times and failure to present a passbook on demand by the police was no longer an offence. Let's listen to South Africa's president at the time, P.W. Bota. A decision has already been taken to the effect that as from the date of the tabling of the white paper on urbanization, which will be next week, no further charges will be preferred under such measures. Yeah, yeah, now listen further. <laughs> Furthermore, people who have been convicted on such charges will be released forthwith. Yeah, yeah. And those who are being detained pending such charges will likewise be released. Yeah, yeah. Furthermore, Mr. Chairman, legislation for the issue of a uniform identity document for all the population groups will be tabled during next week. I wish to emphasize that in future the present passbooks will be treated only as a temporary identity document and it is therefore important that holders of such documents keep it until they have been issued with new documents. And that was South African President P.W. Borta speaking on this day in 1986. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, up next with our economics update. South Africa's Metal Workers Union, NUMSA, has accused employers in the steel and engineering industry of negotiating in bad faith. More than 220,000 NUMSA members downed tools on July the 1st, demanding a 12% wage increase. The Steel and Engineering Federation has made an offer of 10%, which it says will be withdrawn if it's not accepted by Friday. NUMSA's General Secretary, Evan Jim, says that the union has taken the offer to its members, who will ultimately decide whether to accept it or not. 
this level of arrogance that basically makes demands after demands, demands that come Friday, the offer is off the table, is very primitive and it belongs in the old order. And therefore, we are not moved by their threats. The bottom line is that, yes, there is an offer on the table. We are taking that offer to our members. And then I think by testing, we would have a feedback from our structures and we will on the basis of that be able to get a feedback whether our members accept or reject our offer. Meanwhile with Gauteng being the economic hub of South Africa Member of the Economic, or rather Executive Council of Economic Development, Labukham Maile, says Noomsa's strike is likely to have a negative effect on the province's economy. We believe that the Noomsa strike has the potential to undermine the reindustrialization and job creation in the province. The 2012 Noomsa strike led to almost 8,000 people losing their jobs within the manufacturing sector. The current Noomsa strike is more likely to have an adverse effect, especially given that it is linked to the mining sector. This uh, means that Harbin's economy is going to be adversely affected, especially in the next quarter. South Africa's herbal Ray Boss has T has secured geographic indicator status in the long-awaited economic partnership agreement with Southern African nations and the European Union. South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister, Rob Davies, has termed the designation significant given the widespread popularity Raybos has acquired in Europe in recent years. Director of Natural Resources at South African Raybos Council, David de Villiers. Raybos is a herbal tea that is only found in the Western Cape region of South Africa. It's consumed worldwide, caffeine-free, very healthy tea. A new tourism law has been gazetted in Zimbabwe in a bid to plug porous borders that have seen the Southern African nation lose millions of US dollars every year. The enactment of the new law will help Zimbabwe make at least 5 billion US dollars per year in the tourism sector by 2020. Zimbabwe's tourism minister, Walter Zimbi, says Zimbabwe cannot account for the income realized from the visits to the country, causing serious cash flow problems. Meanwhile, the country is planning to bid for the hosting of the World Cup in 2020. 34, despite enormous challenges. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. Zimbabwe's tourism minister Walter Muzembe says the country has amended tourism laws aimed at plugging its porous borders. The new law is aimed at increasing tourist revenue to 5 billion US dollars per year by 2020. Muzembe says Zimbabwe is losing millions of dollars due to a relaxed law and regulations at the borders. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe's finance minister, Patrick Chinamasa, says Zimbabwe could miss its 6.4% growth target this year, but the final number will not be as slow as some international lenders have predicted. The World Bank has downgraded the country's growth to 3% this year. The International Monetary Fund says the economy is fragile and sees a growth of 4%. Chinamasa predicts the 2014 growth on a recovery in agriculture and a strong performance in mining. 
indicators. The US dollar trades at 10.59 South African rands, 8.72 Botswana pulas, 6.09 Zambian kwachas, 0.58 British pound, 0.73 to the euro. Gold 1307 dollars, platinum 1484 dollars an ounce. Brand crude 107, 23 cents a barrel. Economic update. Thank you, Tabi. So, Msibudi Makura, up next with the sports update. Thank you, Lulu. Starting off with football news, there has been much speculations as to who will be appointed the new head coach of the South African men's senior team. While the South African Football Association will announce a successful candidate on Saturday, there is debate raging on whether a local coach or a foreign coach should take over the Bafana Bafana hot seat. SAFA President Dr. Danny Jordan sheds more light on the selection process. We will have the opportunity for the first time on Saturday as a national executive to discuss the matter and then finalise it. And we will then inform uh, the public. Bomalanga Black Aces head coach Clive Barker, who also happens to have been the only coach to have delivered an international trophy after guiding the national team to the Africa Cup of Nations podium on home soil back in 1996, has called on Safa to appoint a local coach. Until South Africa understands and SAFA understands, get your own identity and develop your own setup. And that's the only way you can become a powerful football nation. Otherwise, you might as well just make up the numbers. We make up the numbers because we have no identity. We had the flair of the township players, the Dr. Kamala, the Jomos, the Aces. They were, they were here. They were here the whole time. But why not go back to that again? Why have we now got to look to get a foreign coach and copy some way that was successful in thing. Get out there and do it our own way, eh? Meanwhile, Bafana Bafana and Olano Pirates leading goalkeeper Senzo Miwa says outgoing Nigeria head coach Stephen Keshi has been, who has been linked to the Bafana Bafana job, could be the right man to take the team forward. There's great coach that I've seen in the papers that day. They want to come and coach Bafana. There's the one Stephen Keshi from Nigeria. I think he's also a good coach. And the, the one from uh, Portugal, yeah, Carlos. So I don't know, but I can see Stephen Cage is a great, I think he's a great coach in Africa. It shows people, it shows the African uh, people that he can do something out of nothing because he built Nigeria. Nigeria went for the quarterfinals. I think for me, he's, 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 I can say he's one of the. And on to cricket news, the Proteas have descended from the high of winning the first test against Sri Lanka and have shifted their focus to the final match starting in Colombo on Thursday. Proteas vice-captain Abi de Villiers says the squad is hungry and committed to finishing the tour off with a win and will not back off despite the fact that the series can't be lost. We don't want to lose it. Um, so it's, it's important for us to do more of the same than what we did in the first test match. Uh, we were clinical with bat and ball in hand, and even in the field we didn't drop a lot of catches. Um, I, I thought we just just all around a great performance. So important for us to start well. I think day one um, 
that first session is going to be important to assess the conditions, to do the basics really well and to lay that foundation like we did in the first test match with the batting and whether we bat or bowl first, I think that's going to be important um, to lay that foundation um, to, to, to give the rest of the boys freedom, to, to give everyone freedom to, to really um, express their talents. And finally, Jamaica's double Olympic sprint silver medalist Johan Blake has been ruled out of the rest of the 2014 season after undergoing surgery on an injured hamstring. That's according to his coach, Glenn Mills. Blake sustained the injury in the 100 metres at the Glasgow Grand Prix and on the 11th of July. Blake, who could not defend his 100-meter world title in Moscow last year because of a hamstring injury, has also opted against racing the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow starting today to concentrate more on his build-up to the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. While those are your sports news at the Sawa, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, Kenyan parties, Kenyan opposition parties intensify calls for referendum, UN chief calls for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, and EU threatens Russia with harsher sanctions over Ukraine. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagata, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info@channelafrica.co.za, tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Margaret Singana with We Are Growing.